Welcome back, everyone, to part two of Bret Hart's classic short story, an episode of Fiddletown. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And now, our story. The gray fog deepened into night, and the street lamps started into shivering life as, absorbed in these unprofitable memories, Mrs. Trethrick still sat drearily at her window. Even Carrie had slipped away, unnoticed, and her abrupt entrance with the damp evening paper in her hand roused Mrs. Trethrick and brought her back to an active realization of the present. For Mrs. Trethrick was wont to scan the advertisements in the faint hope of finding some avenue of employment. She knew not what, open to her needs, and Carrie had noted this habit. Mrs. Trethrick mechanically closed the shutters, lit the lights, and opened the paper. Her eye fell instinctively on the following paragraph in the telegraphic column. Fiddletown, 7th. Mr. James Trethrick, an old resident of this place, died last night of delirium tremens. Mr. Trethrick was addicted to intemperate habits, said to have been induced by domestic trouble. Mrs. Trethrick did not start. She quietly turned over another page of the paper and glanced at Carrie. The child was absorbed in a book. Mrs. Trethrick uttered no word, but during the remainder of the evening was unusually silent and cold. When Carrie was undressed and in bed, Mrs. Trethrick suddenly dropped on her knees beside the bed and, taking Carrie's flaming head between her hands, said, "'Should you like to have another papa, Carrie, darling?' "'No,' said Carrie, after a moment's thought. "'But a papa to help Mama take care of you, to love you, to give you nice clothes, to make a lady of you when you grow up.' Carrie turned her sleepy eyes toward the questioner. "'Should you, Mama?' Mrs. Trethrick suddenly flushed to the roots of her hair. "'Go to sleep,' she said sharply, and turned away. But at midnight the child felt two white arms close tightly around her, and was drawn down into a bosom that heaved, fluttered, and at last was broken up by sobs. "'Don't cry, Mama.' "'whispered Carrie, with a vague retrospect of their recent conversation. "'Don't cry. I think I should like a new papa, "'if he loved you very much, very, very much.' "'A month afterward, to everybody's astonishment, "'Mrs. Trethrick was married. "'The happy bridegroom was one Colonel Starbottle, "'recently elected to represent Calaveras County "'in the legislative councils of the state.' As I cannot record the event in finer language than that used by the correspondent of the Sacramento Globe, I venture to quote some of his graceful periods. The relentless shafts of the sly god have been lately busy among our gallant salons. We quote one more unfortunate. The latest victim is the Honorable C. Starbottle of Calaveras. The fair enchantress in the case is a beautiful widow, a former votary of Thespis, and lately a fascinating St. Cecilia of one of the most fashionable churches of San Francisco, where she commanded a high salary. The Dutch flat intelligencers saw fit, however, to comment upon the fact with that humorous freedom characteristic of an unfettered press. The new Democratic war horse from Calaveras has lately invented in the legislature with a little bill to change the name of Threthrick to Starbottle. They call it a marriage certificate down there. Mr. Trethrick has been dead just one month, but we presume the gallant colonel is not afraid of ghosts. 
"'It is but just to Mrs. Trethwick "'to state that the Colonel's victory "'was by no means an easy one. "'To a natural degree of coyness on the part of the lady "'was added the impediment of a rival, "'a prosperous undertaker from Sacramento, "'who had first seen and loved Mrs. Trethwick "'at the theatre in church. "'His professional habits debarring him "'from ordinary social intercourse, "'and indeed any other than the most formal "'public contact with the sex.' As this gentleman had made a snug fortune during the felicitous prevalence of a severe epidemic, the colonel regarded him as a dangerous rival. Fortunately, however, the undertaker was called in professionally to lay out a brother senator, who had unhappily fallen by the colonel's pistol in an affair of honor, and either deterred by physical consideration from rivalry, or wisely concluding that the colonel was professionally valuable, he withdrew from the field. The honeymoon was brief, and brought to a close by an untoward incident. During their bridal trip, Carrie had been placed in the charge of Colonel Starbottle's sister. On their return to the city, immediately upon reaching their lodgings, Mrs. Starbottle announced her intention of at once proceeding to Mrs. Culpepper's to bring the child home. Colonel Starbottle, who had been exhibiting for some time a certain uneasiness which he had endeavored to overcome by repeated stimulation, finally buttoned his coat tightly across his breast and after walking unsteadily once or twice up and down the room, suddenly faced his wife with his most imposing manner. <clears throat> "'I have deferred,' said the colonel, with an exaggeration of port that increased with his inward fear, and a growing thickness of speech. "'I have deferred—I may say postponed—statement. Thrash my duty to disclose to ye. I do not wish to mar your happiness, but the child is gone.' "'Gone?' "'echoed Mrs. Starbottle. "'There was something in the tone of her voice, "'in the sudden drawing together of the pupils of her eyes, "'that for a moment nearly sobered the colonel, "'and partly collapsed his chest. "'I'll explain it all in a minute,' he said, "'with a deprecating wave of the hand. "'Everything shall be explained. "'The, the, the melancholy event which precipitate, "'which precipitate our happiness, "'the mysterious province which release you, "'release child.' "'Understand? Release child. "'The mom to Trethrick die. "'All claim you have in child through him. "'They die too. "'Thash law. "'Whose child belong to? "'Trethrick? "'Trethrick's dead. "'Child can't belong dead man. "'Damn nonsense trying to belong to dead man. "'It's your child? "'No. "'Well, whose child then? "'Child belong to its mother. "'Understand? "'Where is she? "'said Mrs. Starbottle, with a very white face and a very low voice. "'I'll explain all. Child belonged to its mother. That's law. "'I'm lawyer, legislator, an American citizen. "'It's my duty as lawyer, as legislator, an American citizen, "'to restore a child to suffering mother at any cost. Any cost.' "'Where is she?' repeated Mrs. Starbottle, "'with her eyes still fixed on the colonel's face. "'Gone to its mother.' "'Gone east on steamer, passer day. "'That's so.' "'Mrs. Starbottle did not move. "'The colonel felt his chest slowly collapsing, "'but steadied himself against a chair, "'and endeavored to beam with chivalrous gallantry "'not unmixed with magisterial firmness upon her as she sat. "'Your feelings, ma'am, do honor to your sex, "'but consider her situation. "'Consider minor's feelings. "'Consider my feelings.' "'The colonel paused and flourishing a white handkerchief, placed it negligently in his breast, and then smiled tenderly above it, 
as over laces and ruffles, on the woman before him. "'Why should dark shatter cast fly on two souls with a single beat? "'Child's fine child, good child, but someone else's child. "'Child's gone, Claire, but all isn't gone, Claire. "'Consider, dearest, y'alls have me.' "'Mrs. Starbottle started to her feet. "'You!' she cried, bringing out a chest note that made the chandeliers ring. "'You that I married to give my darling food and clothes! "'You! A dog that I whistled to my side to keep the men off me! "'You!' "'She choked up and then dashed past him into the inner room, "'which had been Carrie's. "'Then she swept by him again into her own bedroom, "'and then suddenly reappeared before him, erect, menacing, "'with a burning fire over her cheekbones, "'a quick straightening of her arched brows and mouth, "'a squaring of jaw, and a fitting flattening of the head.' "'Listen,' she said, in a hoarse, half-grown boy's voice. "'Hear me. If you ever expect to set eyes on me again, you must find my child. If you ever expect to speak to me again, to touch me, you must bring her back. For where she goes, I go. You hear me? Where she has gone, look for me.' She struck out past him again, with a quick feminine throwing out of her arms from the elbows down, as if freeing herself from some imaginary bonds and dashing into her chamber, slammed and locked the door. Colonel Starbottle, although no coward, stood in superstitious fear of an angry woman, and recoiling as she swept by, lost his unsteady foothold and rolled helplessly on the sofa. Here, after one or two unsuccessful attempts to regain his foothold, he remained, uttering from time to time profane but not entirely coherent or intelligible protests until at last he succumbed to the exhausting quality of his emotions, and the narcotic quantity of his potations. Meantime, within, Mrs. Starbottle was excitedly gathering her valuables and packing her trunk, even as she had done once before in the course of this remarkable history. Perhaps some recollection of this was in her mind, for she stopped to lean her burning cheeks upon her hand, as if she saw again the figure of the child standing in the doorway, and heard once more a childish voice asking, "'Is it Mama? Is it Mama?' But the epithet now stung her to the quick, and with a quick, passionate gesture she dashed it away with a tear that had gathered in her eye. And then it chanced that, in turning over some clothes, she came upon the child's slipper with a broken sandal string. She uttered a great cry here, the first she had uttered, and caught it to her breast, kissing it passionately again and again, and rocking from side to side, with a motion peculiar to her sex. And then she took it to the window, the better to see it through her now streaming eyes. Here she was taken with a sudden fit of coughing that she could not stifle with the handkerchief she put to her feverish lips. And then she suddenly grew very faint. The window seemed to recede before her, the floor to sink beneath her feet. And staggering to the bed, she fell prone upon it with the sandal and handkerchief pressed to her breast. Her face was quite pale, the orbit of her eyes dark, and there was a spot upon her lip, another on her handkerchief, and still another on the white counterpane of the bed. The wind had risen, rattling the window sashes and swaying the white curtains in a ghostly way. Later, a gray fog stole softly over the roofs, soothing the wind-roughened surfaces and inwrapping all things in an uncertain light and a measureless peace. She lay there very quiet, for all her troubles, still a very pretty bride. 
and on the other side of the bolted door the gallant bridegroom, from his temporary couch, snored peacefully. A week before Christmas Day, 1870, the little town of Genoa, in the state of New York, exhibited, perhaps more strongly than at any other time, the bitter irony of its founders and sponsors. A driving snowstorm that had whitened every windward hedge, bush, wall, and telegraph pole played around this soft Italian capital, whirled in and out of the great staring wooden Doric columns of its post office and hotel, beat upon the cold green shutters of its best houses, and powdered the angular, stiff, dark figures in its streets. From the level of the street, the four principal churches of the town stood out starkly, even while their misshapen spires were kindly hidden in the low, driving storm. Near the railroad station, the new Methodist chapel, whose resemblance to an enormous locomotive was further heightened by the addition of a pyramidal row of front steps, like a cowcatcher, stood as if waiting for a few more houses to be hitched on to proceed it to a pleasanter location. But the pride of Genoa, the great Cramer Institute for Young Ladies, stretched its bare brick length and reared its cupola plainly from the bleak Parnassian Hill above the principal avenue. There was no evasion in the Cramer Institute of the fact that it was a public institution. A visitor upon its doorsteps, a pretty face at its window, were clearly visible all over the township. The shriek of the engine of the four o'clock Northern Express brought but few of the usual loungers to the depot. Only a single passenger alighted, and was driven away in the solitary waiting sleigh toward the Genoa Hotel. And then the train sped away again, with that passionless indifference to human sympathies or curiosity peculiar to express trains. The one baggage truck was wheeled into the station again, the station door was locked, and the station master went home. The locomotive whistle, however, awakened the guilty consciousness of three young ladies at the Cramer Institute, who were even then surreptitiously regaling themselves in the bake shop and confectionery saloon of Mistress Phillips in a by-lane. For even the admirable regulations of the Institute failed to entirely develop the physical and moral natures of its pupils. They conformed to the excellent dietary rules in public, and in private drew upon the luxurious rations of their village caterer. They attended church with exemplary formality, and flirted informally during service with the village beau. They received the best and most judicious instruction during school hours, and devoured the trashiest novels during recess the result of which was an aggregation of quite healthy, quite human, and very charming young creatures that reflected infinite credit on the Institute. Even Mistress Phillips, to whom they owed vast sums, exhilarated by the exuberant spirits and youthful freshness of her guests, declared that the sight of them young things did her good, and had even been known to shield them by shameless equivocation. Four o'clock, girls, and if we're not back to prayers by five, we'll be missed said the tallest of these foolish virgins, with an aquiline nose and certain quiet elan that bespoke the leader as she rose from her seat. Have you got the books, Addie? Addie displayed three dissipated-looking novels under her waterproof. And the provisions, Carrie. Carrie showed a suspicious parcel filling the pocket of her sack. All right, then. Come, girls, trudge. Charge it, she added, nodding to her host as they passed toward the door. I'll pay you when my quarter's allowance comes. No, Kate, interposed Carrie, producing her purse 
"'Let me pay. It's my turn.' "'Never,' said Kate, arching her black brows loftily. "'Even if you do have rich relatives and regular remittances from California. Never. Come, girls. Forward. March.' As they opened the door, a gust of wind nearly took them off their feet. Kind-hearted Mrs. Phillips was alarmed. "'Sakes alive, gals! You mustn't go out in such weather. Better let me send word to the Institute, and make up you a nice bed tonight in my parlor.' But the last sentence was lost in a chorus of half-suppressed shrieks as the girls, hand in hand, ran down the steps into the storm, and were at once whirled away. The short December day— unlit by any sunset glow, was failing fast. It was quite dark already, and the air was thick with driving snow. For some distance their high spirits, youth, and even inexperience kept them bravely up, but, in ambitiously attempting a shortcut from the high road across an open field, their strength gave out. The laugh grew less frequent, and the tears began to stand in Carrie's brown eyes. When they reached the road again, they were utterly exhausted. "'Let us go back,' said Carrie. "'We'd never get across that field again,' said Addie. "'Let's stop at the first house, then,' said Carrie. "'The first house,' said Addie, peering through the gathering darkness, "'is Squire Robinson's.' She darted a mischievous glance at Carrie that, even in her discomfort and fear, brought the quick blood to her cheek. "'Oh, yes,' said Kate, with gloomy irony. "'Certainly.' "'Stop at the squire's by all means, "'and be invited to tea, "'and be driven home after by your dear friend Mr. Harry, "'with a formal apology from Mrs. Robinson, "'and hopes that the young ladies may be excused this time.' "'No,' continued Kate with sudden energy. "'That may suit you, "'but I'm going back as I came, "'by the window or not at all.' "'Then she pounced suddenly like a hawk on Carrie.' who was betraying a tendency to sit down on a snowbank and whimper, and shook her briskly. "'You'll be going to sleep next. Stay, hold your tongues, all of you. What's that?' It was the sound of sleigh bells. Coming down toward them out of the darkness was a sleigh with a single occupant. "'Hold down your heads, girls. If it's anybody that knows us, we're lost.' But it was not, for a voice strange to their ears, but withal very kindly and pleasant, "'asked if its owner could be of any help to them. "'As they turned toward him, "'they saw it was a man wrapped in a handsome sealskin cloak, "'wearing a sealskin cap, "'his face half-concealed by a muffler of the same material, "'disclosing only a pair of long mustaches "'and two keen, dark eyes. "'It's a son of old Santa Claus,' whispered Addie. "'The girls tittered audibly as they tumbled into the sleigh. "'They had regained their former spirits.' "'Where shall I take you?' said the stranger, quietly. There was a hurried whispering, and then Kate said boldly, "'To the Institute!' They drove silently up the hill until the long, ascetic building loomed up before them. The stranger reined up suddenly. "'You know the way better than I,' he said. "'Where do you go in?' "'Through the back window,' said Kate, with sudden and appalling frankness. "'I see,' responded the strange driver quietly, and, alighting quickly, removed the bells from the horses. "'We can drive as near as you please now,' he added by way of explanation. "'He certainly is a son of Santa Claus,' whispered Addie. 
"'Hadn't we better ask his father?' "'Hush!' said Kate decidedly. "'He's an angel, I dare say.' She added with a delicious irrelevance, which was, however, perfectly understood by her feminine auditors. "'We are looking like three frights.' Cautiously skirting the fences, they at last pulled up a few feet from the dark wall. The stranger proceeded to assist them to alight. There was still some light from the reflected snow, and as he handed his fair companions to the ground, each was conscious of undergoing an intense, though respectful, scrutiny. He assisted them gravely to open the window, and then discreetly retired to the sleigh until the difficult and somewhat discomposing ingress was made. He then walked to the window. "'Thank you, and good night,' whispered the three voices. A single figure still lingered. The stranger leaned over the window sill. "'Will you permit me to light my cigar here? It might attract attention if I struck a match outside.' By the upspringing light he saw the figure of Kate very charmingly framed in by the window. The match burnt slowly out in his fingers. Kate smiled mischievously. The astute young woman had detected the pitiable subterfuge. For what else did she stand at the head of her class and had doting parents paid three years' tuition? The storm had passed, and the sun was shining quite cheerily in the eastern recitation room the next morning when Miss Kate, whose seat was nearest the window, placing her hand pathetically upon her heart, affected to fall in bashful and extreme agitation upon the shoulder of Carrie, her neighbor. He has come, she gasped in a thrilling whisper. Who? asked Carrie, sympathetically, who never clearly understood when Kate was in earnest. Who? Why, the man who rescued us last night. I saw him drive to the door this moment. Don't speak. I shall be better in a moment. There, she said, and the shameless hypocrite passed her hand pathetically across her forehead with a tragic air. What can he want? asked Carrie, whose curiosity was excited. "'I don't know,' said Kate, suddenly relapsing into gloomy cynicism. "'Possibly to put his five daughters to school, perhaps to finish his young wife and warn her against us.' "'He didn't look old, and he didn't seem like a married man,' rejoined Addie thoughtfully. "'That was his art, you poor creature,' returned Kate scornfully. You can never tell anything of these men. They're so deceitful. Besides, it's just my fate. Why, Kate, began Carrie, in serious concern. Hush! Miss Walker is saying something, said Kate, laughing. The young ladies will please give attention, said a slow, perfunctory voice. Miss Carrie Trethrick is wanted in the parlor. Meantime, Mr. Jack Prince the name given on the card, and various letters and credentials submitted to the Reverend Mr. Crammer, paced the somewhat severe apartment known publicly as the Reception Parlor, and privately to the pupils as Purgatory. His keen eyes had taken in the various rigid details from the flat steam radiator, like an enormous japanned soda cracker, that heated one end of the room to the monumental bust of Dr. Crammer, that hopelessly chilled the other. From the Lord's Prayer, executed by a former writing-master in such gratuitous variety of elegant calligraphic trifling as to abate considerably the serious value of the composition. 
to three views of Genoa from the Institute, which nobody ever recognized, taken on the spot by the drawing teacher, from two illuminated texts of scripture in an English letter, so gratuitously and hideously remote as to chill all human interest, to a large photograph of the senior class in which the prettiest girls were Ethiopian in complexion, and sat, apparently, on each other's heads and shoulders. His fingers had turned listlessly to the leaves of school catalogues, the sermons of Dr. Crammer, the poems of Henry Kirk White, the lays of the sanctuary, and lives of celebrated women. His fancy, and it was a nervously active one, had gone over the partings and greetings that must have taken place here, and wondered why the apartment had yet caught so little of the flavor of humanity. Indeed, I am afraid he had almost forgotten the object of his visit when the door opened, and Carrie Tretherick stood before him. It was one of those faces he had seen the night before, prettier even than it had seemed then, and yet I think he was conscious of some disappointment without knowing exactly why. Her abundant waving hair was of guinea-golden tint, her complexion of peculiar flower-like delicacy, her brown eyes of the color of seaweed in deep water. It certainly was not her beauty that disappointed him. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to an episode of Fiddletown, Part 2. Without possessing a sensitiveness to impression, Carrie was, on her part, quite as vaguely ill at ease. She saw before her one of those men whom the sex would vaguely generalize as nice, that is to say, correct in all the superficial appointments of style, dress, manners, and feature. Yet there was a decidedly unconventional quality about him. He was totally unlike anything or anybody that she could remember. And as the attributes of originality are often as apt to alarm as to attract people, she was not entirely prepossessed in his favor. I can hardly hope, 
he began pleasantly, "'that you remember me. "'It is eleven years ago, and you were a very little girl. "'I am afraid I cannot even claim to have enjoyed that familiarity "'that might exist between a child of six and a young man of twenty-one. "'I don't think I was fond of children, but I knew your mother very well. "'I was editor of the Avalanche in Fiddletown when she took you to San Francisco.' "'You mean my stepmother. She wasn't my mother, you know,' interposed Carrie hastily. Mr. Prince looked at her curiously. "'I mean your stepmother,' he said gravely. "'I never had the pleasure of meeting your mother.' "'No. Mother hasn't been in California these twelve years.' There was an intentional emphasizing of the mother title and of its distinction "'that began to interest coldly Prince "'after his first astonishment was passed. <laughs> "'As I come from your stepmother now,' "'he went on with a slight laugh, "'I must ask you to go back for a few moments "'to that point. "'After your father's death, your mother, "'I mean your stepmother, "'recognized the fact that your mother, "'the first Mrs. Trethrick, "'was legally and morally your guardian "'and, although much against her inclination and affections, "'placed you again in her charge.' "'My stepmother married again within a month after father died, "'and sent me home,' said Carrie, with great directness, "'at the faintest toss of her head. "'Mr. Prince smiled so sweetly, and apparently so sympathetically, "'that Carrie began to like him. "'With no other notice of the interruption, he went on. "'After your stepmother had performed this act of simple justice, "'she entered into an agreement with your mother "'to defray the expenses of your education until your eighteenth year,' when you were to elect and choose which of the two should thereafter be your guardian, and with whom you would make your home. This agreement, I think, you are already aware of, and I believe, knew at the time. I was a mere child then, said Carrie. Certainly, said Mr. Prince, with the same smile. Still the conditions, I think, have never been oppressive to you, nor your mother, and the only time they are likely to give you the least uneasiness will be when you come to make up your mind in the choice of your guardian. That will be on your eighteenth birthday, the twentieth, I think, of the present month. Carrie was silent. Pray do not think that I am here to receive your decision, even if it be already made. I only came to inform you that your stepmother, Mrs. Starbottle, will be in town tomorrow, and will pass a few days at the hotel. "'If it is your wish to see her before you make up your mind, "'she will be glad to meet you. "'She does not, however, wish to do anything to influence your judgment.' "'Does Mother know she's coming?' said Carrie hastily. "'I do not know,' said Prince gravely. "'I only know that if you conclude to see Mrs. Starbottle, "'it will be with your mother's permission. "'Mrs. Starbottle will keep sacredly this part of the agreement "'made ten years ago.' "'but her health is very poor, "'and the change and country quiet of a few days "'may benefit her.' "'Mr. Prince bent his keen, bright eyes upon the young girl, "'and almost held his breath until she spoke again. "'Mother's coming up today or tomorrow,' she said, looking up. "'Ah!' said Mr. Prince, with a sweet and languid smile. "'Is Colonel Starbottle here, too?' "'asked Carrie after a pause. "'Colonel Starbottle is dead. "'Your stepmother is again a widow.' "'Dead?' 
repeated Carrie. Yes, replied Mr. Prince. Your stepmother has been singularly unfortunate in surviving her affections. Carrie did not know what he meant, and looked so. Mr. Prince smiled reassuringly. Presently, Carrie began to whimper. Mr. Prince softly stepped beside her chair. I am afraid, he said, with a very peculiar light in his eye and a singular dropping of the corners of his mustache. I'm afraid you're taking this too deeply. It will be some days before you're called upon to make a decision. Let us talk of something else. I hope you caught no cold last evening. Carrie's face shone out again in dimples. You must have thought us so queer. It was too bad to give you so much trouble. None whatever, I assure you. My sense of propriety, he added demurely, which might have been outraged had I been called upon to help three young ladies out of a schoolroom window at night, was deeply gratified at being able to assist them in again. The doorbell rang loudly, and Mr. Prince rose. Take your own time, and think well before you make your decision. But Carrie's ear and attention were given to the sound of voices in the hall. At the same moment, the door was thrown open, and a servant announced, Mrs. Tretrick and Mr. Robinson. The afternoon train had just shrieked out its usual indignant protest at stopping at Genoa at all, as Mr. Jack Prince entered the outskirts of the town and drove toward his hotel. He was wearied and cynical. A drive of a dozen miles through unpicturesque outlying villages, past small economic farmhouses, and hideous villas that violated his fastidious taste, had, I fear, left that gentleman in a captious state of mind. He would have even avoided his taciturn landlord as he drove up to the door, but that functionary waylaid him on the steps. "'There's a lady in the sitting-room, waiting for ye.' Mr. Prince hurried upstairs, and entered the room as Mrs. Starbottle flew toward him. She had changed sadly in the last ten years. Her figure was wasted to half its size. The beautiful curves of her bust and shoulders were broken or inverted. The once full, rounded arm was shrunken in its sleeve, and the golden hoops that encircled her wan wrists almost slipped from her hands as her long, scant fingers closed convulsively around Jack's. Her cheekbones were painted that afternoon with the hectic of fever. Somewhere in the hollows of those cheeks were buried the dimples of long ago, but their graves were forgotten. Her lustrous eyes were still beautiful, though the orbits were deeper than before. Her mouth was still sweet, although the lips parted more easily over the little teeth, even in breathing, and showed more of them than she was wont to do before. The glory of her blonde hair was still left. It was finer, more silken, and ethereal. Yet it failed even in its plenitude to cover the hollows of the blue-veined temples. "'Clara,' said Jack, reproachfully. "'Oh, forgive me, Jack,' she said, falling into a chair, but still clinging to his hand. "'Forgive me, dear, but I could not wait longer. I should have died, Jack, died before another night.' "'Bear with me a little longer. "'It will not be long. "'But let me stay. "'I may not see her, I know. 
I shall not speak to her. But it's so sweet to feel that I am at last near her, that I breathe the same air with my darling. Am I better already, Jack? I am indeed. And you've seen her today? How did she look? What did she say? Tell me all, everything, Jack. Was she beautiful? They say she is. Has she grown? Would you have known her again? Will she come, Jack? Perhaps she has been here already. Perhaps. She had risen with tremulous excitement and was glancing at the door. Perhaps she's here now. Why don't you speak, Jack? Tell me all. The keen eyes that looked down into hers were glistening with an infinite tenderness that none, perhaps, but she would have deemed them capable of. Clara, he said gently and cheerily, try and compose yourself. You're trembling now with the fatigue and excitement of your journey. I've seen Carrie. She's well and beautiful. Let that suffice you now. His gentle firmness composed and calmed her now, as it had often done before. Stroking her thin hand, he said, after a pause, Did Carrie ever write to you? Twice, thanking me for some presents. They were only schoolgirl letters, she added, nervously answering the interrogation of his eyes. Did she ever know of your own troubles, of your poverty, of the sacrifices you made to pay her bills, of your pawning your clothes and jewels, of your... No, no, interrupted the woman quickly. How could she? I have no enemy cruel enough to tell her that. But if she, or if Mrs. Trethrick, had heard of it? If Carrie thought you were poor and unable to support her properly, it might influence her decision. Young girls are fond of the position that wealth can give. She may have rich friends, maybe a lover. Mrs. Starbottle winced at the last sentence. But, she said eagerly, grasping Jack's hand, when you found me sick and helpless at Sacramento, when you, God bless you for it, Jack, offered to help me to the east, you said you knew of something, you had some plan that would make me and Carrie independent. Yes, said Jack, hastily, but I want you to get strong and well first. And now that you're calmer, you shall listen to my visit to the school? It was then that Mr. Jack Prince proceeded to describe the interview already recorded, with a singular felicity and discretion that shames my own account of that proceeding. Without suppressing a single fact, without omitting a word or detail, he yet managed to throw a poetic veil over that prosaic episode, to invest the heroine with romantic, roseate atmosphere, which, though not perhaps entirely imaginary, still, I fear, exhibited that genius which ten years ago had made the columns of the Fiddletown Avalanche at once fascinating and instructive. It was not until he saw the heightening color and heard the quick breathing of his eager listener that he felt a pang of self-reproach. "'God help her and forgive me,' he muttered between his clenched teeth. "'But how can I tell her all now?' That night, when Mrs. Starbottle laid her weary head upon her pillow, she tried to picture to herself Carrie at the same moment sleeping peacefully in the great schoolhouse on the hill. And it was a rare comfort to this yearning, foolish woman to know that she was so near. But at this moment 
Carrie was sitting on the edge of her bed, half undressed, pouting her pretty lips and twisting her long, leonine locks between her fingers as Miss Kate Van Corlier, dramatically wrapped in a long white counterpane, her black eyes sparkling and her thoroughbred nose thrown high in the air, stood over her like a wrathful and indignant ghost. For Carrie had that evening imparted her woes and her history to Miss Kate, and that young lady had proved herself no friend by falling into a state of fiery indignation over Carrie's ingratitude and openly and shamelessly espousing the claims of Mrs. Starbottle. Why, if the half you tell me is true, your mother and those Robinsons are making of you not only a little coward, but a little snob, miss. Respectability, forsooth. Look you, my family are centuries before the Trethricks, but if my family had ever treated me in this way, and then asked me to turn my back on my best friend, I'd whistle them down the wind. And here Kate snapped her fingers, bent her black brows, and glared around the room as if in search of a recreant Van Corlier. "'You just talk this way because you've taken fancy to that Mr. Prince,' said Carrie. In the debasing slang of the period, that had even found its way into the virgin cloisters of the Crammer Institute, Miss Kate, as she afterward expressed it, instantly went for her. First, with a shake of her head, she threw her long black hair over one shoulder, then, dropping one end of the counterpane from the other, like a vestal tunic, she stepped before Carrie with a purposely exaggerated classic stride. "'And what if I have, miss? What if I happen to know a gentleman when I see him? What if I happen to know that among a thousand such traditional, conventional, feeble editions of their grandfathers as Mr. Harry Robinson, you cannot find one original, independent, individualized gentleman like your prince. Go to bed, miss, and pray to heaven that he may be your prince indeed. Ask to have a contrite and grateful heart, and thank the Lord in particular for having sent you such a friend as Kate Van Corlier. Yet after an imposing dramatic exit, she reappeared the next moment as a straight white flash, kissed Carrie between the brows, and was gone. The next day was a weary one to Jack Prince. He was convinced in his mind that Carrie would not come. Yet to keep this consciousness from Mrs. Starbottle, to meet her simple hopefulness with an equal degree of apparent faith, was a hard and difficult task. He would have tried to divert her mind by taking her on a long drive, but she was fearful that Carrie might come during her absence, and her strength, he was obliged to admit, had failed greatly. As he looked into her large and awe-inspiring clear eyes, a something he tried to keep from his mind, to put off day by day from contemplation, kept asserting itself directly to his inner consciousness. He began to doubt the expediency and wisdom of his management. He recalled every incident of his interview with Carrie, and half believed that its failure was due to himself. Yet Mrs. Starbottle was very patient and confident. Her very confidence shook his faith in his own judgment. When her strength was equal to the exertion, she was propped up in her chair by the window, where she could see the school and the entrance to the hotel. In the intervals, she would elaborate pleasant plans for the future, and would sketch a country home. She had taken a strange fancy, as it seemed to Prince, to the present location, 
but it was notable that the future, always thus outlined, was one of quiet and repose. She believed she would get well soon. In fact, she thought she was now much better than she had been. But it might be long before she could be quite strong again. She would whisper on this way until Jack would dash madly down into the barroom, order liquors that he did not drink, light cigars that he did not smoke, talk with men that he did not listen to, and behave generally as our stronger sex is apt to do in periods of delicate trials and perplexity. The day closed with a clouded sky and a bitter, searching wind. With the night fell a few wandering flakes of snow. She was still content and hopeful, and as Jack wheeled her from the window to the fire, she explained to him how that as the school term was drawing near its close, Carrie was probably kept closely at her lessons during the day, and could only leave the school at night. So she sat up the greater part of the evening, and combed her silken hair, and as far as her strength would allow, made an undressed toilet to receive her guest. "'We must not frighten the child, Jack,' she said apologetically, and with something of her old coquetry. It was with a feeling of relief that, at ten o'clock, Jack received a message from the landlord, saying that the doctor would like to see him for a moment downstairs. As Jack entered the grim, dimly-lighted parlor, he observed the hooded figure of a woman near the fire. He was about to withdraw again, when a voice that he remembered very pleasantly said, "'Oh, it's all right. I'm the doctor.' The hood was thrown back, and Prince saw the shining black hair and black audacious eyes of Kate Van Corlear. "'Don't ask any questions. I'm the doctor, and here's my prescription.' And she pointed to the half-frightened, half-sobbing Carrie in the corner. "'To be taken at once.' "'Then Mrs. Trethrick has given her permission?' "'Not much, if I know the sentiments of that lady,' replied Kate saucily. "'Then how did you get away?' asked Prince gravely. "'By the window!' "'When Mr. Prince had left Carrie in the arms of her stepmother, he returned to the parlor. "'Well?' demanded Kate. "'She will stay.' "'You will, I hope, also, tonight. "'As I shall not be eighteen, and my own mistress on the twentieth, "'and as I haven't a sick stepmother, I won't. "'Then you will give me the pleasure of seeing you safely through the window again?' "'When Mr. Prince returned an hour later, "'he found Carrie sitting on a low stool at Mrs. Starbottle's feet. "'Her head was in her stepmother's lap, "'and she had sobbed herself to sleep. "'Mrs. Starbottle put her finger to her lip. "'I told you she would come. "'God bless you, Jack, and good night.' "'The next morning, Mrs. Trethrick, indignant, "'the Reverend Asa Crammer, principal, injured, "'and Mr. Joel Robinson, senior, complacently respectable, "'called upon Mr. Prince. "'There was a stormy meeting,' "'ending in a demand for Carrie. "'We certainly cannot admit of this interference,' "'said Mrs. Trethrick, "'a fashionably dressed, indistinctive-looking woman. "'It is several days before the expiration of our agreement, "'and we do not feel, under the circumstances, "'justified in releasing Mrs. Starbottle from its conditions. 
"'Until the expiration of the school term, "'we must consider Miss Trethrick "'as complying entirely with its rules and discipline,' "'imposed Dr. Crammer. "'The whole proceeding is calculated to injure the prospects "'and compromise the position of Miss Trethrick in society,' "'suggested Mr. Robinson. "'In vain Mr. Prince urged the failing condition of Mrs. Starbottle, "'her absolute freedom from complicity with Carrie's flight, "'the pardonable and natural instincts of the girl, "'and his own assurance that they were willing to abide by her decision. "'And then, with a rising color in his cheek, "'a dangerous look in his eye, "'but a singular calmness in his speech, he added, "'One word more.' "'It becomes my duty to inform you of a circumstance "'which would certainly justify me, "'as an executor of the late Mr. Trethrick, "'in fully resisting your demands. "'A few months after Mr. Trethrick's death, "'through the agency of a Chinaman in his employment, "'it was discovered that he had made a will, "'which was subsequently found among his papers. "'The insignificant value of his bequest, "'mostly land, then quite valueless, "'prevented his executors from carrying out his wishes.' or from even proving the will, or making it otherwise publicly known, until within the last two or three years, when the property had enormously increased in value. The provisions of that bequest are simple, but unmistakable. The property is divided between Carrie and her stepmother, with the explicit condition that Mrs. Starbottle shall become her legal guardian, provide for her education, and in all details stand to her in loco parentis. "'What is the value of this bequest?' asked Mr. Robinson. "'I cannot tell exactly, but not far from half a million, I should say,' returned Prince. "'With this knowledge, as a friend of Miss Trethrick, "'I must say that her conduct is as judicious as it is honorable to her.' Mrs. Trethrick spoke up. "'I shall not presume to question the wishes "'or throw any obstacles in the way of carrying out "'the intentions of my dead husband.' and the interview was closed. When its result was made known to Mrs. Starbottle, she raised Jack's hand to her fever's lips. I cannot add to my happiness now, Jack, but tell me, why did you keep it from her? Jack smiled, but did not reply. Within the next week, the necessary legal formalities were concluded, and Carrie was restored to her stepmother. At Mrs. Starbottle's request, a small house in the outskirts of the town was procured, and thither they removed to wait the spring, and Mrs. Starbottle's convalescence. Both came tardily that year. Yet, she was happy and patient. She was fond of watching the budding of the trees beyond her window, a novel sight to her Californian experience, and of asking Carrie their names and seasons. Even at this time, she projected for that summer, which seemed to her so mysteriously withheld, long walks with Carrie through the leafy woods, whose gray, misty ranks she could see along the hilltop. She even thought she could write poetry about them, and recalled the fact as evidence of her gaining strength. And there is, I believe, still treasured by one of the members of this little household, a little carol so joyous, so simple, and so innocent, "'that it might have been an echo of the robin "'that called to her from the window, "'as perhaps it was. "'And then, without warning, "'there dropped from heaven a day so tender, "'so mystically soft, so dreamily beautiful, 
so throbbing and alive with the fluttering of invisible wings, so replete and bounteously overflowing with an awakening and joyous resurrection not taught by man or limited by creed, that they thought it fit to bring her soul out and lay her in that glorious sunshine that sprinkled like the droppings of a bridal torch the happy lintels and doors. And there she lay, beautified and calm. Wearied by watching, Carrie had fallen asleep by her side, and Mrs. Starbottle's thin fingers lay like a benediction on her heart. Presently, she called Jack to her side. "'Who was that?' she whispered. "'Who just came in?' "'Miss Van Corlear,' said Jack, answering the look in her great hollow eyes. "'Jack?' she said, after a moment's silence. "'Sit by me a moment, dear Jack. "'I've something I must say. "'If I ever seemed hard or cold "'or coquettish to you in the old days, "'it was because I loved you, Jack, "'too well to mar your future by linking it with my own. "'I always loved you, dear Jack, "'even when I seemed least worthy of you. "'That is gone now. "'But I had a dream lately, Jack.' a foolish woman's dream, that you might find what I lacked in her. And she glanced lovingly at the sleeping girl at her side, that you might love her as you have loved me. But even that is not to be, Jack, is it? And she glanced wistfully in his face. Jack pressed her hand, but did not speak. After a few moments' silence, she again said, Perhaps you are right in your choice, "'She is a good-hearted girl, Jack, but a little bold.' "'And with this last flicker of foolish, weak humanity "'in her struggling spirit, she spoke no more. "'When they came to her a moment later, "'a tiny bird that had lit upon her breast flew away, "'and the hand that they lifted from Carrie's head "'fell lifeless at her side.' Thanks for joining us for an episode of Fiddletown by Bret Hart at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We always appreciate reviews. So if you enjoyed this story, please do send us a review. Spotify now also asks for comments for each episode. So if you're a Spotify listener and would like to comment on our episodes, I'll be covering that as well as we go forward. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. As you know, we bring stories every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and Sunday at 12 noon Eastern Time. Until our next story, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.